Welcome to Heavy Networking, a uniquely nerdy podcast that puts the network at the center of the universe where it belongs. Today is a sponsored show with Thousand Eyes, and we're going to dive into a smorgasbord of interesting topics. First, we're going to talk about a new synthetic transaction monitoring tool from Thousand Eyes. Second, we're going to have a conversation about why performance monitoring is critical to your SD-WAN readiness. And third, we're going to dig into this summer's internet outages, including a major route leak that affected Cloudflare. We'll get into what that means when you're relying on the internet for critical business applications. So our guests from Thousand Eyes today are Alex Henthorne Ewain. He is VP of Product Marketing and Angelique Medina, Director of Product Marketing. Alex and Angelique, welcome back to Heavy Networking. And let's start with the new synthetic transaction product. Why is Thousand Eyes adding synthetic transaction monitoring? Thanks for having us. It's always fun to be here. Uh, so we are announcing a new synthetic transaction monitoring capability that is basically correlating synthetic transaction um, testing with underlying network and uh, internet routing in one view, uh, time correlated. And, and really, that's, that's the, the new thing. It's, it's, um, it's bringing those pieces together. So we've had ways to look at transactions in the past. Uh, you know, we've had page loads of HTTP, but what we're doing is, is pulling all those pieces together so that you are not able just to see what's happening at the app layer, but all the pieces underneath it. Okay, so you're looking at the you're walking through an application, but you're also marrying that to the underlying network performance. It's giving you sort of two looks at what's going on in the application and the performance. Yeah, actually, it's quite multi-layered. So basically, it, what you would do is be able to set up a multi-step, multi-page, uh, for example, a transaction. But what you'd be able to see underneath that is, for example, an HTTP layer to see, all right, what's happening in just availability response time of, uh, of a page. Underneath that, what's happening at end-to-end -end network metrics. Underneath that, what's happening in terms of the end-to-end -end paths mm -hmm. and the hop-by-hop -hop metrics. And underneath that, the BGP routing mm -hmm. that's happening, anything that's changing there. So you be able to really see this full stack of data that's kind of time correlated. And we also have kind of enhanced some of our, our approach in terms of, you know, we now are basing this on a JavaScript basis, you know, so it's, it's JavaScript backend to it. We do have a web recorder, you know, and all that mm -hmm. sort of thing, but it's, it's a JavaScript backend, which makes it very, very flexible and allows lots of folks who know JavaScript to be able to use it instead of having a, a custom scripting language. Mm. But yeah, it's very multi-layered, totally different from any other synthetics that's out there. Well, I think the key here is that synthetic testing is that there's two ways of doing network visibility. And one way is to have the passive probes and a lot of people use flow data and, and so forth. And the other way is to have synthetic testing. And there's two sort of, they're very broad approaches. Maybe I should write a white paper about that, but there's two approaches. The trick with synthetic testing, and there's lots of advantages to synthetic testing because you can schedule them to happen whenever you want, out of hours, in hours, you know, that sort of thing. So you can actually schedule synthetic tests to do load testing out of hours, which is very useful. But I think the unique thing about what Thousand Eyes is doing here with the synthetics is you're actually helping me write the synthetic tests. The hardest part about synthetic testing is either to offer somebody, like, here's a HTTP test, like, you know, do a HTTP GET. If I get a reply, it's up. Woo! -hoo. That's not very useful when you really what you want to do is hit the store, log in, put an object in a cart, and then check something out, use a test buy or a, or a test account, and that actually measures it. So the, I think the key here is that your synthetic testing is accompanied with a web recorder, which actually gives you the ability to do meaningful tests without having to be a programmer or a scripter or a, you know some sort of deep skills in that area. Right. And we're, we're definitely trying to serve both sides of this because the web recorder allows you to record certain steps uh, and then you can create 
you know, markers so that you can take metrics from each step, for example. It's meant to be you know, easy to use and will automatically uh, capture credentials to put them in an encrypted store, you know, for logins, things like mm-hmm. that. So yeah, the idea is that you're trying to capture the actual user journey. And mm-hmm. it could be for something like e-commerce, like you just said, you know, log in. Yeah browsing a catalog, all that kind of stuff. But what the other thing is that we're finding is that synthetics has been around for a while, right? It's not itself that new. But what we're finding is it's kind of getting a resurgence because of SaaS. So because if you've built your own application, right, e-commerce application, you're going to do a few different things. You're going to use RUM, real user monitoring, which is basically yeah. code instrumentation, right? Where you mm-hmm. can then collect, you know, kind of user signals from the browser, right? Yeah. So this is where you build the analytics into the application if you write it. And you there are companies out there who give you code and you put it into breakpoints in the app. And so then when you deploy it, it goes and sends data to a third party to do real user monitoring as like right so that's like app dynamics or you know a new relic for example right so that's great stuff but what if you don't own the app, right? What if it's SaaS? So, and it so turns out that enterprises are writing less and less of their own apps and they're just going, you know, uh, I remember I was talking to one customer, they're like, yeah, we're cloud first, build last. I, I, I had heard cloud first, but I had never heard uh, a strategy of, of cloud first and build last. And I thought that was actually a pretty interesting thing because they're just saying, we're going SaaS for every single thing we can. And as a result, yeah, they use RUM for code instrumentation for anything that they write, but increasingly that's becoming a like a minority. And so now how do they actually capture user interactions? Like for example, for Salesforce, right? And in the case of this one customer, they are using Salesforce, not just for like something like 45,000 employees use it, but they, mm-hmm. they've got hundreds of thousands of customer and partner users accessing Salesforce to place orders and do all sorts of stuff. And so it's this huge mission critical software that they don't own. So synthetics and the ability to see for them, like really importantly, what's happening underneath it, what's happening on the internet or our network, Mm. et cetera, is like really important to them. What you've also got, there's the synthetics is added on to the other stuff that you're doing because your synthetic testing is agent driven. Now, the interesting thing about Thousand Eyes is that you can have agents that Thousand Eyes runs in the cloud. So I can choose to use Thousand Eyes agents, but that's not where the users are. You're also giving me ability to use agents inside my network or where my users are. Right. So we can come in at the, you know, we have the, yeah, what you said, we have cloud agents in 180 some cities around the world. So those can uh, basically represent the users sitting out on the internet or in offices, you know, all over the world. But you can also put the same software agents, we call them enterprise agents, in your own branch offices. Or for that matter, let's say, you know, if you do have an internal something like your SAP instance in your data center, it's probably talking to external stuff. So you can actually put an enterprise agent there and have it talk to the SaaS that it cares about, you know, Um, because every piece of software now is talking to other stuff that's out on the internet. So Alex, it sounds like you've outlined two use cases here. One is using synthetic transactions to monitor performance on web apps that you've built and own. And the other is then to work with software as a service applications to get performance metrics on an application that you don't have any control over that infrastructure. Right. And I would say in cases of apps that you've built, where Synthetics complements RUM, for example, is that RUM gives you a massive set of data, but it's it's highly subjective data and it's hard to baseline on it, right? <laughs> so what you typically do with Synthetics is you're going to do a regular set of measurements to really critical things, right? Like, can you check out <laughs> right. or whatever? Yeah. And so even though you're collecting RUM data, you use synthetics to, to do the, the very 
normative baselining type of measurements that tell you whether there's drift in performance uh, for, for an important juncture of your user, you know, experience user journey. And then, you know, within our case, and then you can dive down to say, is that because it's just an app thing? Is it because it's infrastructure? Is it because it's a network thing, internet? A routing issue, what have you? Um, yeah. So it complements run in those cases, but in the case of SaaS, you know, you're not not using RUM. So it really becomes kind of your full stack picture of the app down to everything else. RUM's very useful when you're writing code against a database, and you want to know if your database is performance. So can the if this code makes a call and that piece of code makes a call, if the database performance is not right, you know there's something wrong. And if you're using a cloud service database, you know, one of the, from one of the cloud providers, you might have a problem where the database you're using is choked, right? Or your bill's not being paid and you're being throttled or something like that. That's where RUM excels, but where RUM fails is monitoring the user experience because all it monitors is once it hits the server, the RUM code that's actually inside the app then can start to say what's happening, but it doesn't accurately measure what's happening from the server to the user. And it also doesn't give you the second phase of what's wrong with the network because you've got that as well. Right. And that's where, you know, becomes completely obvious to folks when they're using SaaS because they, they're not confused by ownership of the application or the data center or whatever. Um, they, they know they're like, hey, we're popping out of our branch office or where, what have you, and we're going over the internet to the SaaS provider. So we, we own nothing. So we need to we need to see the network. And I think that's the thing that's there's a, been a change when people start to say we're cloud first and, and build last, that they start to realize that all the network and internet performance issues that can that can interfere with the app are really part of the responsibility. They, they can't really just say, well, it's the internet. You know, that, that's mm. just not a good enough answer anymore. So yeah. that's one of the things by giving a correlated view down through the network internet routing and even actually capturing internet outages, you know, that may be going on. We're giving folks the ability not just to know like that the application or the SaaS is having an issue, but a fair amount of why that could be happening. And if it's in a network segment, if it's in the internet, or you know, or if it's definitely not, and it's in the infrastructure of a SaaS provider, for example, they can now know that and know exactly where the problem domain is and start going with some real data to solve that or escalate, right, and get it solved. Yeah, so I, I'm wondering who you feel like this information is for, because I think of Thousand Eyes being the, the data you generate generally being consumed by network engineers, maybe the infrastructure team. But when you start getting into synthetic transaction, that seems like it's moving more toward the developer side. So are you anticipating that it's networking folks who are going to use this as sort of a quick tool to say, it's not the network, or is there more detail that they can either consume themselves or toss over to the other side of the fence? Yeah, what we're finding is maybe there there may be some developers who would use this, but I would say what we'll find is that if you're the team that owns the overall user experience, right, and you operationally speaking, mm -hmm. there's going to be some folks who are going to want to look at key user interactions, you know, kind of like, can users complete the business that they want to complete? Usually, and this is an interesting thing for us because what we're finding is that those people are oftentimes reporting to someone who owns the, it's like a line of business type person, you know, like mm -hmm. there's someone, for example, in a large corporation who is tasked with, if they have a large sales force or, you know, what, or Office 365 deployment, someone is responsible for the performance of that. And they're going to have some folks from a monitoring basis, maybe operational monitoring or something like that. Or, you know, I know it's a scary word, ITIL type, you know, service <laughs> delivery. You get, you got to put a nickel in the jar. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's why I, that's why I put it in you know, quotation marks because it's very scary stuff. 
is you know there there'll be some folks who are who have to own it at that level, like at the user inter- interaction, user experience level. And they're the folks who will tend to use synthetics, but they will also be paired with you know connected to some network team folks who are going to be on call. So yeah. what we'll find is that the synthetics are really interesting to those sort of app owner monitoring folks, and then the network, obviously, all the network stuff underneath it. They love the fact that you get that. They might need to call on the network team to interpret it, though. I would broaden it out a little bit it's more of an infrastructure approach because you're not just focusing on one app you're providing a set of tools that works for all apps now that might be monitoring our office 365 mail are my dns servers up and running am i is my online web store still able to add a good to a a checkout uh, to a shopping cart and then check it out and make a, a transaction all of those things are infrastructure specific or infrastructure led if you're a developer you only care about your one app you don't care about the apps on either side you end up probably don't care about dns or any of the other things and if the network goes wrong you probably don't even know how to spell n-e-t-w-o-r-k you just go i'll talk to my networking <laughs> people right you go, oh it's mystic magic what do you mean the network doesn't work at all you know but anyway i digress so i think it's much more of an approach i think Synthetic testing is very much an infrastructural approach because it can be used for everything, not just a narrow function of what RUM is used for. Right, for sure. And that's why I, I think it's interesting that it's it's maybe less for the developers who are really micro-focused on some piece of the application. But you know, if you've got a big enough, mission-critical enough application or, or website, what have you, there's someone there whose neck is on the line for how that thing does, right? Mm-hmm. And they've got people who are who are tasked with making sure it's doing well. I mean, so there can be teams like that. And then, but for sure, this is really broadly applicable to any application or, you know, whether internally developed mm-hmm. or, or SaaS that you care about. And we have seen what what we've seen with some, you know, with customers is that they realize that they they start using this for one thing, and they're man gives you such a thorough view that kind of operations team will basically say, hey. Anybody who wants any kind of visibility for application, they got to use this, right? Uh, because you're going to get, a, we're going to get all the layers of visibility that we need to actually solve the problem. And uh, so, you know, once people get a taste of being able to see at multiple layers, they don't want to go without it. Yeah, yeah. This synthetic transaction capability—it's essentially emulating a browser. Are you emulating a specific browser? Yeah, so it's it's, it's Chromium based, and mm. uh, the recorder and you know and our agents use the same sort of browser. So it's when we do the recording, and then you put into JavaScript and all that. When you replay it from our agents, it's you know it's all the same thing. I mean, when the nice thing about the JavaScript backend is that, like, okay, yeah, you don't need to know scripting or programming. But if you have people who do know it, what we found is when we say, hey, you know, the backend is JavaScript, there are some people probably in that broader operations team who are just cheering for that. Like, yes, (laughs) you know, like, thank, thank goodness I can actually do something with, you know, like a standard scripting language. And now we can refactor stuff so much Mm. more easily. This weird custom (laughs) language that has all these... (laughs) odd sort of behaviors and limits and such. So I think that's that's been a win as we've talked to customers. They're, they're loving the fact that we got the recorder, but they also have got a really flexible backend where you yeah. can you know do all the conditionals and certs and, and stuff like that uh, in a programmatic, programmatic basis. Yeah, I've, I, I've used these types of recorders before. There have been uh, various ones that exist that I, I back in the day I used. And what I used to do was 80-20. I could do 80% of what I needed to achieve in the recorder, and then I would dive in and do the rest of the 20% in the code. And if it's JavaScript, there's a fair chance that it's pretty normal sort of an approach to it. 
and that makes it easy to deploy within an operation within an infrastructure team. You don't have to go out and find a developer or something. And there's a lot of people who can do JavaScript, so it's it's uh, it's nice for we've we found that it's been pretty popular in that way. Yeah, so I think we found that uh, this sort of new approach is getting a really great response. I think folks are realizing that when you don't assume that you own all the underlying stuff anymore, that you need you know this sort of synthetic or active approach, you know, end to end approach. You need to see across layers, and that 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 solves a lot of problems that they they've kind of maybe some level hadn't realized that they had. Yeah, and that's and this is an extension to onto all the other stuff we've talked about with Thousand Eyes over the last you know three or four years. You've got the the networking, the nodes, the probes, watching what's happening in the backbone. We'll talk more about that when we do some case studies. Talk about some of the recent outages like Google and and uh, WhatsApp and how you've got to to knowing what was happening in those. But this is an add on. This isn't a you know this isn't another product. This is if you want to start using this and you've got Thousand Eyes light it up. And if you've been using synthetics, kind of more app-only synthetics, and you're starting to deal with SaaS or deal with more internet exposure, this is a way you can get that view. One last comment I'll make about sort of our agents' coverage is that, you know, I think one of the things that's happened is, is that traditional synthetics products, which have been around for a long time, you know, some of them are getting, you know, phased out, and there's there's been some change in there. But also the the folks who've done synthetics have kind of, I'm going to say, dabbled. Like a lot of the, in a lot of the cases, you only mm. get, um, you know, kind of cloud agents, the equivalent of cloud agents, only from, you know, AWS regions, for example. And that's nice, but the problem is that there's no actual users who sit in AWS regions, and AWS regions <laughs> are probably some of those networked kind of locations on Earth. They just don't represent a user reality. On the internet, so you know that's one of the other things we note is that there was more synthetics players in the past who actually had infrastructure out there for for agents, but most of them kind of withdrawn and have kind of just decided synthetics is sort of a token thing um, that they're mm. not investing in. Uh, but for us, we see you know with the cloud, with SaaS, and all that, this is actually increasingly important. So we've actually continued to you know build more agents. You know, so. You know, not long ago, we might have been 120, 150, we're 180 plus global agents, and we continue to just expand because we think that investment makes, you know, makes our customers mm. able to see a real user's point of view. I think the challenge people will have is knowing when to use synthetics and when to use the the other features and knowing which is the right mix, but I'm sure you'll be there to help them with that. Okay, so... Uh, let's stick with monitoring, but now we're going to pivot to SD-WAN. Uh, and I guess uh, this, this section is going to be about combining Thousand Eyes and SD-WAN. And I guess the first question that comes to mind for me is SD-WAN products are already monitoring the links they're using because that's part of SD-WAN's value prop. You know, if a link falls below a certain quality for a particular app, it's supposed to switch links. So what does Thousand Eyes bring to the table in regards to SD-WAN monitoring? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm um, just to back up a little bit and, and talk about um, SD-WAN more broadly and what we're seeing. I mean, Fundamentally, the move to SD-WAN is to optimally connect to cloud and SaaS um, in order to support digital transformation. And so as the WAN bends to the shape of the cloud, we're seeing so many more attachment points to the WAN fabric outside of the control of IT. So you have VPCs and colos and cloud security gateways, and there's many more egress points to the internet. So you might be breaking out from your branch office to, for example, a SaaS uh, application. So the WAN is becoming much more internet centric. No longer are enterprises solely relying on MPLS, which is a managed service, and you have end-to-end SLAs. So in moving to this much more cloud and internet centric WAN, 
there's a loss of control in many ways of visibility. And to your point, SD-WAN solutions do enable you to, to be more resilient, right? You can define policies, um, uh, construct them to prefer or failover based on performance, uh-huh. and they can see end-to-end what the performance is of, uh, say, uh, from a particular point to maybe a SaaS application or another um, SD-WAN endpoint. But at the end of the day, it controls the overlay. SD-WAN doesn't control the underlying transport. So, for example, you can't see how traffic might be routed across the internet, uh, and when performance uh, is degraded, you won't necessarily know uh, why or where it's occurring. Uh, so that's where uh, Thousand Eyes comes in. We're able to see the underlay. So not only looking at performance um, end-to-end, but also the underlying uh, physical connectivity, the layer three hops between uh, enterprise sites and all of the services and endpoints that matter to them. And that's really key because um, you, you need to be able to see how your traffic is routed across the internet. It's a little bit of a, of a uh, kind of a wild west, um, if you will, in terms of you know, how service providers connect with one another. And then you do need to manage uh, your connectivity when you see uh, performance degrading, um, either due to latency or to packet loss. And a really good example of this was we actually had a, a customer of ours that was monitoring uh, connectivity to an application. They were looking at the performance directly from their branch office versus breaking out at a colo facility you know, via uh, an SD-WAN gateway. Mm-hmm. And in both instances, the performance was really bad. So so both of their internet circuits were giving them poor performance. And as it turned out, the performance degradation was actually taking place within the network of the SaaS provider that they were connecting to. And that's not something that can really be accommodated for. No. That's really hard because you're naturally going to distrust the internet not the provider. You're going to think like, well, everybody's <laughs> accessing the the host, you know, the SaaS service. It must work, or everybody would be complaining. But it's not. There are regular times when you might be being routed to the wrong. That I think the classic one that I can give you is sometimes when you do a local breakout, the DNS routes you to the wrong, not the nearest location. It routes you to. Had situations where somebody based in Ireland gets routed to the SaaS instance in the US instead of being routed to the local CDN in, say, you know, uh, somewhere else uh, in, in Amsterdam, for example. And the only way you can tell that is by having something that's monitoring that end-to-end transaction. You, you, you know, literally capturing pack. Well, not ca- you can't capture packets in the internet, but you need something that's looking at that sort of detail. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also just keeping an eye on your own service providers. You know, who are they? connecting to, are they peering with some, you know, bargain basement provider that's maybe circuitously routing your traffic and that's in, increasing latency. I mean, we've seen that in, in particularly in a number of countries, countries in Asia that can be quite common. So, you know, really having that macro view of where your traffic is at all times is really important. The other thing, you know, is that when you move to SD-WAN, typically that comes with with the whole re-architecting of your, your WAN. And if you're going to be mm. breaking out from the branch office and you're no longer um, backhauling yep. to, say, hub, site, or, or colo facility, maybe you're doing some combination of those two things. But when you're breaking out, very often the, the issue is, like, how do you secure your traffic um, and for and that's where a lot of folks are starting to use cloud-based security solutions and then the question becomes how are they impacting performance you 
won't necessarily know that unless you have visibility not only into the underlay but also the application layer to understand for example is uh, the security solution uh, processing certain web objects in a certain way that's increasing overall latency of for example page loading you won't know that unless you have uh, that visibility into the how the application is is performing, mm. and that's not something that SD WAN can provide either. Well, well, some of, some of the SD WAN providers are starting to do that. But I was talking to somebody recently, and they were using one of the cloud scanning services or cloud security brokers, and it turns out they were having massive problems in some branches where internet performance was a constant issue, and they couldn't work it out because all of the SD WAN analytics was showing it was all green. You know, there was no latency, there was no jitter, and it turns out that the cloud service broker was actually just. Uh, they were being routed into some instances that were just not performing. And mm. it took them ages to get the cloud company, like the service, the SaaS cloud scanning engine, to actually answer and say, yes, it's our fault. We've discovered that, you know, the, the nodes installed in this location that you were on weren't performing right and blah, 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 blah. But it took, they, you know, it was several days before they were able to get on top of that. And they had no data with which to troubleshoot it because the SD-WAN is only looking at what the SD-WAN is doing, which I think is the point of all of this discussion is, there is the SD-WAN analytics is a good start, but it doesn't look it doesn't have any visibility of what happens outside the SD-WAN, and yet so much stuff does happen outside the SD-WAN. Absolutely, absolutely. Which is, you know, I already kind of brought up, you know, the fact that so many of the services that enterprises are relying on are external. So with that, you know, you need some way of determining, you know, what which domain is responsible when something goes wrong, right? Is it is it the is it the SaaS application? Is it their network? Is it some ISP on the internet? Is it the cloud security uh, gateway? Is there something going on in the branch office? And there's all these different potential points, you know, of responsibility, and you don't know where unless you have. Visibility, again, not only into the network, but also mm. the application side. So to your point, with something like a cloud security solution, if they're handling certain parts of an application a certain way, that could potentially impact application mm. performance. And, and looking at, for example, our synthetic testing, as well as like just even looking at how a page loads, you know, how looking at a waterfall, mm. understanding how long is each object taking to load using the cloud security solution versus not, for example, and you can do some yeah. comparisons there, you can get those numbers. And then they're, yeah, they're very nuanced. I'm much I'm much more brutalist. I like the idea of having some thousand eyes reports there before the WAN was put in. And then after you install the SD WAN and then going back to the boss and saying, here see, this is how awesome that was. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even think about baselining performance before they actually move to SD WAN. And that's really important because I mean this is this is a pretty I mean this is probably the most significant uh, change that's occurred in IT in, you know, a decade or, or more. And yeah. it's a really significant strategic initiative uh -huh. for companies, but they often don't know what they're going to get when they hmm. make this change. They just assume that, that everything's going to be fine, that all applications are, are going to perform better, but they yeah. don't even know what, what they're better. operating on now. Now, and so they don't even know what better will look like, right? Yeah. So if you can go back to the boss and say, this is how much better it is, and you're showing them charts, right? That is what everybody else in a company, in normal business does. They say, we, you know, this is, if you're in sales, you go and say, I'm going to spend this much money and buy X number more salespeople 
Look at the numbers. I sold more stuff, right? If you go down to human resources and they say, we're going to do this, and then they have a chart that says, we improved it by this. I think we, f- we fail generally in infrastructural IT and, and in networking specifically because we haven't had visibility tools. There's not an enculturated approach to monitoring, to understand that if you can prove that something that you did was this much better than that. So if you're going to, my advice to people would be is if you're going to do a pilot of an SD-WAN, get a tool like Thousand Eyes in there and start thinking about what sort of tests and then deploy your pilot of the first few sites and then prove to the boss you know, prove to the people around you that it is going to work as you think it's going to work. Prove to yourself, for that matter, that it's going to do what you want. And I think that is not – and, you know, all the things that you talked about, Angelique, around the issue are very important, but they're, they're the advance. Once you've got that SD-WAN proof, you can go on and start deploying thousand eyes around all that to keep the validation going and keep the usefulness going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is not just about operations and monitoring once you've actually made this this change. It's about how do you go about making the right vendor decisions, the right architectural decisions based on data, not on assumptions, not on, you know, just assuming that what some vendor or MSP has told you is going to is gonna actually happen. Know what you're getting today, like baseline your MPLS performance, compare it to uh, your, your internet connectivity, your broadband connectivity. Is it same, better, um, you know, actually have those numbers when you when you go when you you make the case um, for for rolling this out know what your internal application performance looks like and your SaaS application performance looks like so that you actually have a baseline and you know that once you make the the change and maybe you do this incrementally as you roll out to some branch offices that you're getting the performance that you expect is it better is it worse if it's better you want to know that you you did the right thing and that you have the proof that that your uh, your rollout, this this uh, you know this migration was successful. Um, that's really important to your point. That you know IT maybe doesn't do a good enough job of proving the value of something like the WAN to um, to organizations today. Right? It's not just the the transport, you know, the network is up. It's how, you know, what is the digital experience of employees? How are they connecting to applications? Um, And what is the contribution of this migration to that? So proving that the the performance is better of the applications that you care about is really, really critical. And the only way that you can actually prove that is by baselining before knowing what you have and using that to plan and set your KPIs for when you actually go into your production. And I want to drill a little bit into something you raised earlier um, based on my original question. You know, the SD-WAN can measure the performance of the overlay, and if there's a problem, it will fail over to a different link, and that's what it's supposed to do. And that sort of protects uh, you know, the infrastructure team from suffering performance issues, but it doesn't necessarily provide them the visibility to make sure that those performance issues won't keep cropping up, won't be there day exactly. after day. So the idea is that you also need to instrument the underlay and the other components around it, particularly with the cloud, so that if there is persistent issues, you you get the why, not just, well, I'm relying on SD-WAN to protect me from it, but not doing anything about it to fix it in the long term. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a good example of this is let's say that, you know, and we've seen, we see this quite a lot that you might have hybrid connectivity. So maybe you're still retaining your, your MPLS, uh, an MPLS circuit, and then maybe you, you have, um, you know, your internet connectivity and you're relying on your SD-WAN solution to um, determine the best path based on the policies that you set around performance for applications. Now, Let's say that you have a very poor performing internet connectivity. Maybe you're in a region where performance isn't great. And because of that, you're using your MPLS circuit much more than you intended, right? Like if, you're, if your goal is to maybe eventually move to dual internet or you want, you want to depend less on your, your MPLS, then uh, you want to know know if you're favoring one over the other continuously, if this is like a systemic thing where you're having performance issues, you need to be able to ensure that on an ongoing basis, that, you know, things that are cropping up out on the internet, or even maybe with your own carrier for your MPLS, um, is, is not something that's impacting you over the long haul. So it's not just about, you know, failing over or preferring one circuit versus the other. You want to make sure that you're getting the best performance overall from your transport. All right, for our final topic for today's show, uh, there were several significant outages this summer, including a route leak that really affected Cloudflare and Cloudflare customers. Uh, At Thousand Eyes, uh, you guys looked really closely into what happened, into the situation. Can you sort of generally recap for us what went on? Sure. I mean, I would say this was a summer of outages. We saw major outages with, uh, you know, Google Cloud had a big outage uh, that Angela covered in, in blog posts and such. You know, there was Facebook, there was Google Cloud, there was, you know, there was just a ton <laughs> of stuff that went on, particularly earlier in the summer. One of them, one of the things that, you, as you mentioned, was Cloudflare. And this was an interesting situation where it really, in some ways, kind of had nothing to do with Cloudflare, but then right. ended up having everything to do with Cloudflare because of the nature of internet routing. Yes. And so what, what happened was that we um, saw all this sort of impact to Cloudflare. So what, what's going on? So we started looking at this. And what we found was that there was a, just to kind of summarize, there was, uh, I think, a metals manufacturer, all right, that appeared to be leaking routes to Verizon, you know, and what they were doing was they were leaking more specific routes for some major portions of Cloudflare CDN Edge. <laughs> and Verizon, <laughs> um, unfortunately, did not filter those those more specific routes. And more specific routes meaning that they become preferred over what Cloudflare is actually advertising to the internet. So what that happens, basically, all the the internet wants to send traffic to this metals manufacturer. And and (laughs) what happened, if if it had just gone to some small other ISP or something, maybe it wouldn't have that big of an impact. But because this metals manufacturer was connected to Verizon, and Verizon didn't filter these more specific routes. Yeah, they shouldn't have been announcing those prefixes. They should have only been announcing their own, but they started announcing prefixes belonging to other people. And the speculation is they were using routing inside their network to select the outbound paths for various prefixes to Google and then leak those into the internet. Yeah, well, actually, it's funny. So, like, what happened? So, Verizon propagated these routes. So, then we saw, so then because of that, it had this huge impact in terms of traffic getting re steered through Verizon's network, trying to get to this metals manufacturer. It had a tiny little pipe, right? So, everything's this massive packet loss. But then we started looking at wait, did the metals manufacturer actually do this? What we found is that it wasn't actually them. 
what happened was that their other upstream ISP, which is a, a you know, let's say regional ISP in the, on the East mm-hmm. Coast, was using, yeah, this load balancing thing where they, they take a, you know, a prefix that has been advertised by Cloudflare, for example, and they, they say, well, you know, internal to our backbone, we're going to load balance by cutting this up into smaller prefixes, right? So we can then, yep. on a yep. routing basis, you know, get this traffic in and out uh, more efficiently across our, our edge, our, you know, upstream edge. Uh, but what happened is then they leaked that, that they pushed that down to their to their customer, and then it got out. <laughs> so they pushed it to the to their customer, and then the customer was advertised it to Verizon. Okay. Right, just right. made an administrative mistake or whatever. You know, these things happen. But then the the sort of like in this comedy or tragedy of errors, <sighs> you know, on the internet, what happened is Verizon should have had some. There's multiple mechanisms, right? You know, in terms of checking the validity of of routes. You know, of, of, of announced prefixes and they should have, and, and there was a, a big kind of kerfuffle on the internet around this, you know, but they, they should have filtered these things, but they, but because it didn't, because Verizon network is so interconnected, that's what created this huge, huge redirection of traffic, you know, so all of a sudden cloud Cloudflare's, you know, edge gets kind of browned out because all this traffic's trying to steer, you know, instead of across all these other ISPs, try to get through Verizon through this tiny little <laughs> pinhole, right? <laughs> Which then ends up, cl- and then what happened was is this huge ripple effect of packet loss all across Verizon's network because they're now trying to serve this huge <laughs> CDN edge through their network that wasn't normally happening. So it, it was a really uh, interesting phenomenon. We saw multiple route leak issues happen um, in, in the last months, like, you know, we had this thing that happened with WhatsApp and there's some traffic got steered to China Telecom and get dropped and all that. So, mm-hmm. but, but this one was notable because, you know, it involved a controversial route, you know, low balancing technique that, that uh, there are a lot of folks on the internet, basically, you know, uh, I forget whose name it was. People basically say you should, you should decommission, burn and destroy these low balancers because <laughs> they're very, very controversial because of the danger of leaking. Yes you know, more specific prefixes. And that's exactly what happened. So people are really upset about that. And then they're really upset at Verizon for for propagating the routes. Yeah. And what the thing that I liked here is let's lead discussions of technologies that do this. This is a perfectly viable way of load balancing BGP and it's widely used. And whether you're using a load balancing tool to do it automatically or not is neither here nor there. The, The guilt here lies with Verizon who should not have accepted the routes from uh, someone connected to their network. They should not have been configured as a transit network and Verizon should have been filtering at the edge. Now, Verizon's probably got a system to protect them, but the, I think the key here at the end is you were able to diagnose this without anything going, without visibility or talking to any of these people. Normally, you would have to get on the phone. Like the the current way the internet regulates itself is all these people know each other. And if something goes wrong, they ring each other up on their mobile phones and say, we've got a problem. Could you please do this? And somebody goes, I see what we've done there. Let me fix that. And they go off into the system and pull levers and, you know, the wheels turn and there's the steam pops out the top of the engine. All of a sudden, the problem's fixed. But this wasn't fixable for various reasons. And you were able to get visibility into it. And I think there's, yeah, and I think that that's something that we provide to our enterprise customers, you know, to to be able to see what's going on. And I think there's kind of a meta to this particular scenario, which is stuff happens on the internet, right? The internet is an unregulated, you know, agglomeration of, of you know, mo- mostly well-intentioned, but some poorly intentioned, you know, <laughs> actors and, um, and countries. And, um, 
And, you know, things happen regularly that go against logic, against good order. The hygiene is, you know, uh, variable, right? And that can impact your business. And the thing yeah. is that if you don't know, if you have no clue, then what do you tell your customers? Yeah. I mean, like, to me, it comes down to sitting down in front of the boss and going, you know, the internet's broken. But unless you can prove the internet's broken by saying, pulling out a thing and saying, look, this is the path between the Chattanooga branch and Sydney. And as you can see, the internet path between here and here is balked here. And I can't fix it. But all I can do is wait for it to come back. Then everybody goes, oh, well, that's a reason for it. That's all you need to know sometimes. Yeah. And and in some cases, the problem, in this case, this is uh, a situation that was just so big that, you know, an enterprise couldn't fix it. But at yeah. least you can explain it. Right. And then, you know what you need to worry about, what you don't need to worry about. And that's yeah. that's very important. Yeah. And I think the same sort of thing happened for the WhatsApp disruption. Right now, you published a blog post. Now, I just want to refer people. There's blog posts here on the Thousand Eyes website where you talk about these disruptions and demonstrate how the interface actually diagnoses these. So if you want to dive into these BGP announcements all going screwy, there's a lot more detail there. But it was something similar for WhatsApp. There was a um, normally WhatsApp is being advertised from its own AS via various providers. And all of a sudden, there was another domain safe host suddenly announced, uh, started announcing the routes for WhatsApp and WhatsApp goes down for a certain amount of the world. Right. And, you know, and those are great examples of sort of routing based things. And there was an interest, I mean, like the Google cloud outage was, was another really interesting one where mm. we saw, we were able to see, well, and, and Angelique really covered this, so she can talk to this, but we saw basically, you know, all this, all this traffic suddenly die at the edge of Google's network and and she did some coverage of of that that was interesting because it it looked so different from what we would see in a typical ISP um you know outage i you know i don't know maybe Angela, you could just comment on that maybe yeah i mean it, it was it was interesting because just in the in the monitoring that we were doing we got some pretty compelling visuals out of this um you know all the traffic that was destined for uh, two regions um, uh, for Google Cloud uh, were like all the traffic was literally dying at Google's edge. Um, nothing was making it into their own internal network. And what was interesting about that is that, I mean, it was they, they responded pretty quickly um, and kind of doing a little bit of a, a teardown or kind of a recap of what happened. And, and more recently, some more information has come out about this and in terms of, of what went wrong. So they, they basically had um, I mean, there was a series of things that went wrong. They had controllers for the uh, BGP routers um, in those two regions. They accidentally, due to a bug, had had reset both of them. Ah. And because of that, they basically went into a headless state where only a limited number of prefixes were getting advertised internally. So when this traffic was getting to Google's edge, the routers just simply didn't know where to send it because they just didn't have any information on it. So, so it was literally just like a, um, a massive drop. It wasn't similar to, for example, Comcast outage uh, a little while back, maybe about a year ago, where the outage scenario was much more dispersed, if you will. And it was because of different congestion issues. And so you were seeing kind of like little spikes that were that were happening across Comcast network. 
But in this case, it was much more uh, kind of final, if you will. Um, cataclysmic. Yeah. It was, it was like a massive black hole appeared in, the, in, in, this, in some of these networks, right? Yeah. But what was actually kind of interesting about this one, which is, you know, they, they had said that in the headless state that they were still, some customers and services were still reachable, but not others. Um, so, and and, and that's the most interesting thing I think about all this, like what customers need to be asking their provider, you know, what policy bucket do I fit into? (laughs) Well, the challenge here, of course, is when it gets gray, it's not, if there's an outage, there's an outage. And to me, that's okay in a funny sort of a way because something's broken and it's broken, but it's when you've got half of the network is down and you don't know why and you can't say this is the problem or that's the problem. That's when the problems start because you look foolish and the business loses confidence in you as a supplier continuously. So I, that's that's the kitschy part of what you... For, for, you know, I think it's important too that, you know, if you're relying on an external service like, you know, public cloud, that you, you need to be able to have visibility when these things happen because, you know, and even just for SLA purposes, you know, to be able to prove that, you know, you were impacted, for example, um, and be able to show that, that's that's uh, that's really important, again, when you're using a lot of external services. Yeah, and I think that is an important point given the, the hyper-interconnectivity nature of the, the internet, particularly going back to that Cloudflare example, where Cloudflare was initially sort of pilloried in, yeah. on Twitter and the technical press. Well, oh, it's Cloudflare's out. It's all Cloudflare's fault. The, the time it takes to unwind these things and figure out where the problem is can be difficult. Uh, so on one hand, it's good to have sort of neutral or third-party services like Thousand Eyes to look at this. On the other hand, we, we treat these public cloud providers and public cloud services almost like utilities, but they don't necessarily have the same public responsibility of utilities to be forthcoming about what the actual problem was and and being open. Sometimes they are and sometimes they do, but you never know, you never have a good sense of what they're not telling us. So having that kind of instrumentation can be very valuable. Right. Ultimately, you know, yeah, you're right. Um, Some providers like Google are extremely forthright, right? And and, and Cloudflare generally is too, but but not everyone is. So, you know, that's going to be an issue. Well, thank you, Alex and Angelique, for that conversation. And if you want to, uh, we referenced the, the blog post that Thousand Eyes wrote uh, about the, the Cloudflare incident and the, the summer of outages. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Uh, we'll have links to other technical blogs that uh, Thousand Eyes have written about internet performance monitoring. Those will also be in the show notes. In the meantime, if you want to go right away, head over to thousandeyes.com slash packet pushers uh, to get some more information and a free t-shirt, I believe, while you're there. But that does wrap up today's episode. Thanks, Alex and Angelique, for joining us. If you want to find out more about the Packet Pushers podcast network for IT professionals, just visit packetpushers.net and check out our subscribe page. Last but not least, remember that too much visibility would never be enough.